This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's 2023. Can you believe it? I can, based on how late I stayed up and reveled in all of it. I'm sure you raged until like six in the morning, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my my sister texted me at like 9 p.m. and was like, are you guys doing anything fun? What are you guys doing? Are you watching movies? And I had to send her pictures of the entire family asleep because <laughs> everybody was asleep by like 8.30, except for me. And I was like, yeah, we're partying. I, I think I did make it to midnight. I didn't like celebrate or anything. I was just mm. kind of in bed on my phone. Uh, but pretty much everybody else was done by 830. And it's so easy, <laughs> especially with my oldest, who's three. They make like PBS Kids has a special New Year's countdown. It's like a 15 minute video where they show fun like songs and dances and stuff. And then it counts down to the new year. And you can play that whenever you want. You don't have oh. to play it at midnight. You can just play it at seven o'clock and say, okay, it's time for bed. You stayed up so late. This is good to know for next year. Mm -hmm. Get some every Hot time. parenting tips from Andrew Clyden this I year. I mean, you can look at like earlier time zones and try to game those. But if mm -hmm. you're trying to put your kid to bed at like 730 then this is a good way to go. And it's all characters that they know. It's Daniel Tiger and Peppa Pig and those types of people. So Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger's in there. Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's great. So we have a couple things that we're going to talk about today. I'm going to start with some art stuff. We have a great piece on Dan Anderson and his aerial photography in the Pulse this week. A uh, couple updates to some news stories, including the Sister Bay Marina, which you and I talked about extensively a couple weeks ago. Some updates about the battle for the heart and soul of Ephraim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll get into that. And I also want to talk a little bit about a new column that we have from Northern Door Children's Center. Karen up there is writing about parenting and some tips and stuff. And I think mm -hmm. it would be fun for you and I to kind of discuss our thoughts on the first kind of round of that, which is how to stop public tantrums. And yeah. uh, it, was, it was cool to read. It's one of those things. I don't know how your parenting style is or, or if you're, you know, influenced by new parenting trends or just kind of doing what you learn or just doing your best kind of thing. But I know as somebody who's trying his best to gentle parent, a lot of the tips in here are gentle parenting tips and gentle parenting is, is incredibly rewarding, but it's also very difficult. And so when you read this article and you realize just how diligent you need to be in order to instill better behavior, you're like, Oh man, this is kind of a long haul <laughs> thing. Yeah. I mean, you, when you read it, you're like, Okay, these are really good ideas. That'll be great. That'll work. Then it says, and you got to be diligent about this for two to three weeks before you start to see results. And then you're like, I give up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's hard. I uh, when I when I think back to you know how my parents parented, they were definitely more of the they're more dismissive parents in the way that like if you ask them something, they were quick to say like because I said so or because I'm older than you, those types of things, which very frustrating for a child. And so I, I try very hard to explain even the most mundane things to my kids over and over again, because I find that even though they're young, they do have some sense of reason in there. It, it's not fully formed, but there is something there. And just kind of a, a basic rundown of the article, it's, it's about if your kids are tantruming in public, specifically this reader, wrote into Karen about their child throwing a tantrum every time they go to the store because they have come to expect Toys. getting a toy. Yeah. And as I was reading it, they had mentioned that the second time they said no, or second time, first time mom gave a toy, second time dad gave a toy, third time they said no, kids started having a tantrum. They gave in and got the toy. And I was like, oh no, oh no, the biggest mistake you can make to give in. Even though it, it's it's easy in the moment, you're like, oh my, my goodness, there's a scene going on, kids crying, I just need to get bread. Yeah. How do we make this work? Okay, we'll give them the toy. But then Karen goes through to break down how to, you know, explain to your child they can't get a toy every time. Make sure that they go in with no expectations of a toy or the expectation that they won't be getting a toy. And then if tantrums start, you know, taking them out of the store, bringing them back in, taking them out, being very diligent about it, that kind of thing. And it's one of those things where it's like, man, just giving them the toy would be so much easier. But as with all things, when you when you are consistent, you do start to find results. I don't know if you've seen this in your kids 
where you do kind of set boundaries and set rules and it's hard for a while, but eventually they come back to you and kind of unprompted regurgitate the rule back to you. And you realize, oh, they do understand and they did listen yeah. to what I've been doing. That happens with, with my son all the time. We'll explain to him something. He had a streak a couple months ago where he was running away in stores, like would just run away. And if you didn't chase him, he would find his way to the front doors and leave the store. It was always <laughs> like... Every time he would run away, I would just beeline it for the front door because that's where he would end up. So he was doing that, and I'd have to really This is sort of it. like the parenting they do in Japan, right? Where if Oliver's two or three, that means you can go and shop for your own groceries, right? That is, yeah. I mean, you bring that up, and that's a whole other situation. My wife was telling me how depressing it is to look at other cultures and how they treat children, and everybody just kind of understands that children have a place in society and that they are people, and they all kind of come together to help kids rather than in America where it's all about, like, Stranger danger, don't talk to anybody in your silo. Don't talk yeah. to kids if you see them alone because you don't want to be misrepresented, that kind of thing. But uh, we explained to Oliver, you know, when you go into a store, you have to stay biased. You can't run away. Running away is bad, all that kind of stuff. And after two or three times, when we would get him unbuckled to go in the store, he would say, I'm going to stay by daddy, I'm not going to run away. And he would just say that unprompted. And it's like, wow, if you are consistent with it, even though they're two and a half, they will learn and they will come to understand that without having to get angry, without throwing, without threatening, without scaring. I mean, I you asked what my parenting style was. I mean, I probably give in most of the time. <laughs> my, I do what my wife tells me, and then I give in. I don't, I, I don't blame you. It is, it is a constant, like, you have to remind yourself, okay, don't want to go down this road. And everybody gives in every once in a while, right? Everybody's always trying. And, and sometimes I, I try really hard not to create conflict with my wife in this, but there are times where she will be trying to lay down the law and I will come in and be like, hang on, let's just reset and let's just talk to him. Like he struggles going to bed. He likes to hang out with us. So after three or four times of putting him back in bed, Victoria's getting you know more and more stern and more angry. And finally, I'm the one who has to come in and be like, hang on, let's just stop and talk. What do you want, Oliver? And of course... My wife gets upset because she's trying really hard to like do this thing. So every once in a while you do find yourself giving in, but you don't want to just be like, okay, fine. You can do whatever you want, right? Mm -hmm. You still have to try to keep them moving forward the way that you want. But every once in a while, especially if you're the type of parent who tries to be regimented or tries not to like really sit down, sometimes it is important to just get on your kid's level and be like, tell me what you want and then we'll go from there. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's such a weird thing to think about with a three-year-old, but it works. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. So I, I believe Karen will be writing more columns for us. On, on yeah, so Karen, so Karen Corkin Dillamar is the Community Relations and Education Coordinator at Northern Door Children's Center. And she actually, I was volunteering at the parking station for the Townline Art Crawl at Fine Line Designs Gallery this fall. And she said, you know, we got to talking about the Children's Center, and a lot of the questions that parents grapple with up here. And she said she'd always thought about want, wanting to write a column for parenting tips, and I said that'd be great to have in the Pulse if she was actually going to get down to it and write them. So she's finally set aside some time and is going to be writing these every other week for us. So if people have questions, parenting questions, they should send them in to us or to her, and she can try and address those over time. And then you know, we're also trying to add a little more information for families with this in the in the other weeks of just tips that people have, ideas people have figured out for, you know, right, right now we're sitting here in this gray, no snow, just hideous time of year right now in Door County. Hopefully we get some snow soon because this, I, I would take a 17-inch snowstorm over this gray slush mud we have. But you know, what do you do with kids in, in weather like this? How do you keep them entertained in the winter? I'm sure a lot of different parents have found a lot of different tricks over time. So if anybody has them to send those in, and in addition to a lot of these more serious parenting tips that, that Karen will be providing. So just another neat piece of content for a different audience in the polls. Yeah, I think it's great. One last kid thing before we move on. This is just kind of funny. My brother-in-law was kind of struggling to think about what to get Oliver for Christmas. He's three years old. And he ended up deciding on a pair of Nerf guns. And his parents were like, I really don't think that's a good idea. And his brother was like, I don't think that's a good idea. So finally he told us on Christmas Eve what he had got Oliver. And we were like, I don't think we're quite ready 
for him to know what a gun is, number one, <laughs> but also to have a gun and to shoot it. So long story short, my brother-in-law got me two Nerf guns for Christmas and I've been having fun with so them. So you're playing with them. <laughs> yeah, so I'm playing with them. But we told him like, hey, Nerf guns are a great idea. Probably get him more Nerf guns down the line. We have a big backyard for shooting Nerf guns at. Uh, just not ready for three-year-old with Nerf gun. <laughs> Especially because there's also a four-month-old in the house that he's just going <laughs> to he, he would be pummeling. Just shooting constantly. Yeah. So, yeah, that was our other, that was our other parenting story for, for this episode. Let's talk a little bit about Dan Anderson's art, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about Sister Bay and Ephraim. Okay. So, Dan Anderson is featured in The Pulse this week. I don't know a ton about Dan, but I did see his aerial photography, and that's kind of what the focus of this is on. Does he do other types of photography as well? Yeah, well, Dan Anderson is probably, if not the most esteemed of the, the photographers in Door County, he's, he's up there. He studied with Ansel Adams. He's, he just takes an incredible landscape photography and not just distinct to Door County. He will travel around the world and get these incredible pictures of rock formations and not like, doesn't do a lot of people photography, but it, it's, it's just kind of his, one of the things that I've always found interesting with Dan Anderson, I've gotten a chance to talk to him a few times and like the conversation about Photoshop and manipulation of images, he, he put it a really interesting way to me once. Cause I was always on the fence of like, if you were sitting here 20 years ago, cropping a photo or changing the colors on a photo for a newspaper was a pretty sketchy might be the word for it. Cause people were saying, well, that's misrepresenting the news. You're misrepresenting reality. When you tweak that, that has changed over time to some degree, not for like Obviously for like a car crash photo or something like that as more serious, you want to represent what the scene exactly is. But for nature photography and things, there was a, a big fight for a long time or, or controversy within photography about like whether it was okay to manipulate. And it's still, that's ongoing. Now we all can do amazing things just with our phone and the manipulations there. But Dan Anderson's take on it was interesting because he goes, hey, the, our eyes are different than a camera. A camera doesn't represent exactly what your eyes are seeing. So he says, you know, if it, we've all done that thing where we take a photo and it doesn't, you're like, oh, but it, it was so much better. That sunset yeah. was so much brighter or the colors were popping so much more. And then so even a photographer like Dan Anderson has the same thing happen. So he goes back in and goes into Photoshop and, and tweaks it and tries to recreate from that real photo he took and represent what he saw, what yeah. his eyes saw. He's an and artist he and he's trying to represent what he was seeing and feeling in that moment. And feeling as well. That's the other thing too. I, I do remember actually having a conversation with him and, and him talking about this. Yeah. And it like goes to the point of like when he gets back into the shop, if there's a like a phone line or a power pole or something in the shot that he didn't see or he like when he thinks about the composition of what he saw and felt, if it doesn't belong there in his head, then it's gone. Yeah. It doesn't matter about representing the reality perfectly. It's about the feeling of what he saw and trying to capture the artistry of what he felt in that location rather than capturing it 100% as it is. Yeah, and, and we've all been there in certain places in Door County. Like, it, What's popping into my mind is, you know, Len Villano took these incredible photos of the Fall Challenge bike ride in like 2017 and these riders coming through Ephraim and coming up the hill. And in that moment, with the fog over Ephraim and the, the barely visible steeples of Ephraim and everything in the background and the trees of the, the park in the foreground, you don't see any power lines. When you're sitting in that moment, you're just soaking in that scene and like the beauty of this small picturesque town and these riders coming up the hill and the quiet and everything. And then when you look at it in a photo, the power lines really stick out to you. So... Len did a version of that where he removed those power lines because it, it makes you focus on the things that were the beauty in that moment and the things that he felt and right. that people were seeing and what those riders were experiencing. And that's kind of a, an example of, of what Dan Anderson was talking about. And when Dan Anderson said it, I was like, okay, I feel better about doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Now it's not, that's not saying, I don't want to give anyone the perception that if you see a news article in the pulse and there's a picture like that's, we, we don't manipulate those at all, but with others, examples of photography you can you can do a lot and that's okay yeah well and I, I my perspective on this as creative director i'm the one who's going in and manipulating photos if photos need manipulation and the way that i look at it is if i'm featuring artwork 
I almost never crop or change or touch that artwork because I want to represent the artist artwork the best I can, mm -hmm. right? In its original form. Given the space constraints that we have. Sure. And that can be tricky because like, oh man, if I crop this into a different aspect ratio, it would fit so much better and look so much nicer on the page. But you have to weigh the, like, should I disregard the artistic intent of the person who created the art in order to make the page look better? Or do I go with a slightly less tight layout in order to fully represent that art? On other things where it's not about representing the photography, but just about providing a visual element, then yeah, I play with that type of thing yeah. all the time, zooming in, moving things around. The other thing to keep in mind is, you know, 30, 40 years ago, most of the photos that were coming into a newspaper were taken by photographers. And so certain things like color correction and white balance were taken care of ahead of time because they were captured yeah. by people who knew how to do those things. Now, every single person has a camera and we get so many more visuals yeah. with our stuff. The vast majority of it not necessarily provided by our in-house photographer or other mm -hmm. photographers in Door County. And so we're getting raw images from people who just captured something without thinking about the photography of it. When or I get, thinking about how it's going to show up in a print newspaper. Yes, yeah, so That's those the are the thing. things. Like you might need to brighten something and... Because it might look great on a computer screen, but we have to think about how that's going to show up on newsprint. Right. So those are the things that I'm dealing with. 90% of the time when I'm editing something, it is to fix just the things that people didn't think about. Brightening mm. an image. Sometimes people shoot into the sunlight, so the subject is completely shadowed and everything else is brighter. I have to kind of invert that yeah. in post. Like you said, if something is going to print really dark, I'm brightening that up, changing things like that. Those are the considerations that I'm making. And I end up editing a lot more photos than I may have done 30 years ago if I was in this position because I'm getting so many more just raw pieces of data that hasn't been manipulated by a photographer yet. And because 30 years ago, they might not have had the tools to, to do those manipulations. Right. But back to Dan Anderson, this article is not so much about those techniques, but here's a guy who has spent his career taking these incredible landscape photos. And, you know, like technology has changed, photography has changed, everyone's got a great camera in their pocket and stuff. So you, whenever I talk to photographers, they're always talking about like, what makes me different? What makes me more, more valuable than the guy with the great iPhone camera or Samsung camera and just in their pocket or, or a really nice DSLR? What elevates me? And they're always looking for these little things that they can do differently. A guy like Dan Eggert had turned to drone photography years ago. Brett Kosmeiter has done incredible drone photography. But Dan Anderson, it's interesting to hear him talk about it as a guy who had built up this huge career and he's still doing those things, but how he's come to drone photography and what it allows him to do that he never could do before. You know, like he talks about, you know, becoming an older photographer and yeah, I'd love to go in a mud lake and get this photo of nature, but it's really hard to capture what you're seeing in there. It's also hard to hike through the mud and be like knee deep in water. And then you get there and you may not be able to, to see the thing you thought you could see in there. And he says with the drone, he can still use his artistic skills and his framing skills, but he can get to places he could never get to before, which is just an interesting way to hear of a, of a guy. Because you could also be the kind of person who's like, you know, drones are gimmicks. This is not true photography. But I, I always like talking to people who's who are still expanding, even though they've got 30, 40, 50 years of experience. And they're like, I'm going to learn this new thing. I'm going to yeah. see things from a different angle. And it's really interesting. And Tom Groenfeld did a great job talking to Dan and, and getting some, some of those examples of what he was seeing when he framed these photos. Because I've never been much of a... I've flown drones badly, usually crash them. You've done a lot more with drones. Brett Kosminer does a lot with them and really thinks about how he's framing and the shot he's going to get. And that's kind of like what Dan Anderson is doing as well. And it's a different skill. Yeah. And I, there's, there's kind of three different types of drone photography in my mind. And it's really interesting to look at Luke Collins, Dan Anderson, Brett Kosminer. It, it, it's interesting to see the stuff that they gravitate towards because 
one type of like the most basic form of drone photography and we've used it in the pulse is just i need a picture of something big i need a picture of a lot or i need a picture of this bluff i need a picture of something that you can't physically stand to take a picture yeah. at um, it's been helpful for us from a new standpoint although most people don't use drone photography thinking of that but just to give perspective of like, all right, here's this chunk of highway we're talking about, or here's where this development is going to be. And here's, we're going to get 400 feet up and take a look at it. And now we can place the reader to understand, oh, they're talking about that plot between Mojo Rosa's and Door County Nature Works. And that's where the condo is going to go like that. Right. That gives them, and here's how close it really is. When you're way up there, you're like, oh, that's what's next to it. And thing. Right. so it can give you a unique perspective that newspapers could never provide because you couldn't pay a, helicopter pilot to take you around that often right We've, we did that like once in 15 years right yeah so now we can go up with a drone whenever you want right almost. so that's like that's number one is just capturing something that you have to be in the air to capture number two would be applying photography to it and trying to find artistic ways to frame shots from above but then the third thing that i've seen and this is the stuff that dan anderson has gravitated towards that brett has gravitated towards is when you're up in the air and you're looking straight down, it's about capturing the geometry of what you're seeing. And it's yeah. really interesting the different types of patterns you can find. There's some great photos that we featured from Dan in this week's Pulse that really show off that, like the geometric angle that you get when you're looking straight down. Mm -hmm. There's a great shot of the cherry blossoms in this red car taken straight down uh, with the road and the way that the blossoms are laid out. It's all very geometric. If you've ever seen Brett's like ice photography, mm -hmm. um, there's a great Dan Anderson ice shot as well, but it's like, it just creates all of these really interesting geometric shapes and it becomes mm -hmm. less about capturing the subject and more about capturing the most interesting lines. Yeah. And that's something that I think drone photography is really interesting for. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, some of Dan's stuff that, that orchard photo you talk about was, you know, you wouldn't think of the road as being a particularly beautiful thing when you're looking next to these orchards and the blossoms, but that provides this cool, these cool lines within that, like you said. And, you know, Brett's been doing that for several years. I think he did something in the magazine probably two years ago yeah. about just about shooting ice from all different angles and had some incredible stuff in there. And it's like, all right, that's something we almost never see, you know, the layman. So you think of us just as those of us who are not drone photographers, but just who would never do that ourselves, but like, oh, wow, I'm getting this whole new perspective on the, all this land around me that I just stare at from eye level all the time and yeah. like, oh, that's what it looks like out from out over the bluff. Right. Really cool. Well, let's take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to jump into a couple news items. We're going to talk about the Sister Bay Marina, an update on that story, and then also Ephraim. So we'll be back with that in a moment. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. Okay, we are back. So let's talk updates on Sister Bay Marina first. So last we talked about this, the village was looking at potentially discontinuing their permits with vendors at the marina. It would basically make the marina a private marina just for people who own slips there. Uh, you wouldn't have boat tours. You wouldn't have public access. You wouldn't have pontoon rentals, any of that kind of stuff. And we had talked about pros and cons of that. I think you and I came down more on cons than pros, <laughs> but there's been some more discussion uh, and they met and talked about it more. So where are we at? What have they, what have they decided? They are going to meet again in January to make like a, a final decision on a lot of these aspects. So it's not set in stone yet, but they did meet in mid-December, had a public hearing, a packed house at the Sister Bay Liberty Grove Fire Department and they received a lot of letters, almost all of them, and all of the comments in that meeting, except for a couple, were in favor of keeping the commercial vendors there. And the overwhelming sentiment was, you know, along the lines of, 
hey, this is the only way I get on the water. This is the only way my whole family can get together in Door County or one of the, the best ways my whole family can get together of all ages and have an activity together that isn't a, a bar or a restaurant. You know, I can, we can take our 80-year-old grandmother, my two-year-old, and the whole family out on the water, on a pontoon, on a boat cruise and stuff, and see the county in a way that relatively few of us get to see it. And so there was a lot of that sentiment. There were people who's, who operate on those boats and say like, hey, this is a, there's nothing better than bringing a kid out here and, and him asking questions about how to sail and getting interested in sailing and these outdoor activities. So a lot of things like that. Chris Hecht mentioned how often, the, Chris Hecht is the Sister Bay Liberty Grove Fire Department chief. And he mentioned that, you know, several times over the years, these vendors have been very helpful in emergencies in lending their boats and crafts and helping them out. And other people mentioned how if the marina staff finishes their shift in the early evening and somebody comes in on a boat, it's the vendor staff that end up helping people get their boat out of the water if they run into trouble or if there's winds and they need to dock. So there are a lot of really interesting points brought up. And also there were a couple of former village board members and the former village administrator, Bob Cuffrin, who mentioned like, this is the whole reason we did this. This is why we bought this waterfront. This was a stated aim to pull businesses into the community because we had a dying business district. And so John Clove talked about how they specifically went out and recruited Peter Nelson to come in and run this schooner there. And they went out and asked Eric Lundquist if he would come and do boats out of the, the marina because it wasn't a no-brainer for everybody. The village had to go and recruit people to do this because the village didn't have, it wasn't the waterfront community then that it is now. So what John Clove said is, how do we go out, how do we do that and then come back and like pull the rug out from under them after they've invested money in creating a business at our request? So there really wasn't much to, to speak of in the opposite direction. One person did suggest that like, well, these guys could just go to a private marina. You could go and run these boat tours from any of the private marinas in the county. And Sam Forkert from Yachtworks stood up and said, uh, that's just not the case. He's, he has a marina. They do run some boat rentals out of there. And he said they can barely fit that into theirs. And he said, if, if we can't do it, there's not many places out there that could. So He's like, the reality is that just doesn't exist. So you think you just tell them to move, but what you would be doing is more or less eliminating them. So watching the Marina committee sit up in front and hear this, and then, you know, like to just watch their faces and stuff, they, you could tell that they were just like, okay, we stepped on a hornet's nest here. <laughs> and so as soon as it turned over to a conversation back amongst the committee, for the most part, as Fuzzy Suntrum said, he said, I voted to only offer them a one-year contract and to reevaluate this, but clearly, like, that was short-sighted. We should have talked to them first. We should have had a conversation and tried to fix some of these issues that we have before we talked about eliminating them. And that was kind of the sentiment across the board, except for probably Patrick Duffy, the former trustee and member of the Marina Committee, was the one probably most adamant about further pursuit of this and and the complaints about overuse and over-tourism. Got it. So this will be revisited in January, as you said. And then I, I guess what's still on the plate? Has there been an alternative Well, there proposed? are issues that can be addressed. I would, I would term most of them as relatively small, like landlord leasey type issues. Sure, bathroom usage, that kind of bathroom stuff. Bathroom usage. Like, for example, Eric Lundquist... You know, the marina committee said, you know, there's a big problem with people using the marina bathrooms because when they use them and they come from the boat vendors, boat rentals, they have to walk across the boat launch area. And that's dangerous because people are bringing boats in and out of the water. And Eric Lundquist said, well, nobody's ever told me not to send people over there. Why don't we just tell our employees to send them to the village hall so they don't have to cross that? And it's like, oh, yeah, that would help. And it's like nobody ever brought it up to them before. Right. Um, so the lack of communication is a lot of lack of communication probably at the heart of this. There are questions about garbage pickup. Again, that seems like a relatively small one. Like yeah, just throw it in the water, pick up your, gar <laughs> yeah. pick up your garbage, take it to the dumpster. And if not, like your rent's going up or we're going to charge you to clean it up for you, or you're going to lose your lease. Like there's, that's something you do. That's fine. There's questions about the fueling of jet skis and pontoon boats. Now, some Marina committee members were saying that it's illegal fueling. I talked to the DNR and looked up some statutes. It, it is not illegal to fuel on the water, as best as I can tell. However, the Marina Committee 
has asked them not to do that in their leases. So it's more of like a lease question, not a legality question. Got it. So basically, Thor Johnson from Sister Bay Boat Rentals, he f- fills up big gas tanks at gas stations and then carts those tanks down to the marina to fill up his, just like somebody would get fill a gas can yeah. and then fill their lawnmower or something like that. But Marina Committee is, has worries about that. Rightfully so. There are insurance issues to, to consider and things like that. But they have asked Thor to come back with some either a different way to fuel his boats or some safety precautions that he could undertake to, to make them feel more at ease with what, what he does there. And then, you know, there were questions about the, the dock that Edith Becker uses and damage to it, which we talked about in the last podcast. Edith well, Becker turn, is the big touring The boat, big right? schooner. Yep. Nora Dora is the double-decker. Edith Becker is the schooner. So in previous conversations that I have with several board members, they more or less said like, yeah, the, the, that boat had damaged that dock. And it turns out it's more kind of general wear and tear than an incident. And uh, so that came out of that meeting. And then there are questions about how many people they want to allow on the Nora door at any given time. So Patrick Duffy said, I think throughout a number of 80, I think the village has a number when they agreed to have the Nora door there. I think it it had a a cap at 100 passengers per excursion. I think I have that right. And then sometimes it goes to like 150 or more. So they were saying that's too many people on the dock. That's too much traffic into that area. On the flip side, one person who has a a boat slip right next to the Nora door said, hey, it doesn't bother me at all. These people are all coming down there and they're really happy and they're having a great time and they're in a great mood. So it's great seeing them come down there. So I don't know. There is... It seemed like a lot of complaints by the marina committee and staff were blown into big issues that were relatively small issues to solve. It looks like they were all pretty pointed at individual vendors. Like there were, I guess, say there were five complaints about five individual vendors. Is that enough to then say like, all right, carte blanche, we're just going to throw the program away at, at a committee level rather than like, hey, let's start talking to these people and saying... All of these seem like things that should be just part of a day-to-day ongoing conversation of like, hey, clean your stuff up. Like, don't do it? All right, now we're going to have to take it to the committee. But like, here are the things you can do to solve this. And if you don't, now we have to go to a higher level. But it seems like, it doesn't seem like a lot of those intermediate steps were taken. Like Peter Nelson said, the first time I heard about the damage to that dock was in the pulse. You know, that's one that Peter Nelson operates the, the Edith Becker, you know. So, you know, like, for example, let's say one of our Pulse vans, let's say we weren't the Pulse, we were some other entity. And one of our Pulse vans was causing a problem for somebody, parking illegally. And that person, and I only found out about it from a, a TV report, but the business owner where I was parking illegally never just called me and said, hey, you know, you can't park your van here. Like that kind of, that's basically what was happening right. in Sister Bay. It's just bad landlord leasey relationship yeah or to take it a step further if that person had that went to the village board and said we need a ban on parking yeah yeah like sort of like that escalate it that far you can no longer drive your vehicles on our highways like that's kind of what that is akin to without saying hey could you fix this and it turns out actually i can make that way better for you there's a lot of different things that it's just a weird mess that they stepped in one issue that came up again that they the committee ultimately decided was not really theirs to address is complaints about parking, which always happen in Sister Bay and in every community up here. That being like, there's not enough parking for all the people who use these vendors. But as a couple of members of the committee said, like, this is a village issue, village-wide issue. This is not unique to these vendors. It's not unique to this marina. It's an issue we need to address on a wider scale. I have a solution. You get one or two car ferries that can also be down there. And then everybody who's going to get on the Nora door just parks their vehicle on the car ferry car ferry floats out into the water a little bit free parking that sounds crazy but not because one of the issues with bathrooms that actually came up is dave lee now the marina manager said he had just come back from a conference where some marinas actually use floating bathrooms that kind of are parked in a slip and rather than build a whole new building you have these floating bathrooms that are used seasonally or can be moved around if you had to and that's where you, that's, that would solve your bathroom problem, potentially. They actually have those, I think he said they have floating fuel docks at some marina. So if you didn't have a full fuel dock, you'd do it that way. Floating um, parking garage. This you works. could have a floating parking garage. I think every <laughs> town that's on the water, parking is not a problem. It's just, it's short-sighted. 
that's all you got to do to solve it. Egg Harbor parking problem. No, you just park on the water in the water a little bit and you can make it a big thing. All right. So you're going to install paid parking meters on all of the public parking, but the free parking is out on the water. So you drive your car out on the water. It's going to go out for three hours minimum. Before right? we go too off the rails here on parking, we should, we'll do a whole other podcast. There are so many solutions to parking and traffic issues in the county that go far beyond just like no more tourists or we need more parking. And we've, for the most part, countywide, we've tried nothing other than complain about it and build parking lots. But there are a ton of other ways to handle parking. So let's set that aside All right. for another whole deep dive podcast that me and like three people will care about. All right. Well, Egg Harbor, if, if you're listening, feel free to use that idea. Just send <laughs> everybody out for three hour minimums, free parking in the water. <laughs> <laughs> then you can walk all through town and then it'll come back and get in your car and drive off. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about Ephraim. Ephraim is undergoing a battle for the heart and soul of what their town is, <laughs> and from what I understand. And, and this is interesting because there's some conversation about its level of dryness. For people who don't know, Ephraim used to be a dry town. It stopped being a dry town basically when I moved here, so it was just dry for a little bit for me. And it was really quaint when I... Not quaint in that way that like, oh, it's such a picturesque beautiful but like quaint and like oh it's dry that's really funny in wisconsin yeah. <laughs> um but it wasn't that for long so uh your perspective on this is obviously different well, than you, mine you saw it when you got here and then you saw it after a lot of beer and wine sales yeah has your perception of ephraim changed dramatic like are you afraid to go to ephraim now that they have no uh <laughs> i want to go to ephraim because i there wasn't a lot for me there beforehand <laughs> um ephraim was basically wilson's for me as somebody who was new to the county it's like oh there's wilson's i didn't know what else was there really now when i think of ephraim i think of places like trixie's and the pearl and i know chef's hat was there beforehand but i, I think about that whole environment yeah now as as more of a draw than before like trixie's is one of my favorite places in the county to go and it wouldn't have been there before right so i kind of asked that in jest but you know, that is actually a discussion that comes up. So Ephraim, there's a few things that are on the docket for January, and that's why we're talking about it. They, they need to make a few big decisions. One of them is what to do with a, a list of five capital projects that they've been investigating for over a year, and you can get a little more in detail on those. And then one of them is the Village Hall and a proposal to kind of re-landscape and redo the parking around the Village Hall. And then a third one is probably the top of mind one which you're talking about is whether they should expand to offer class A retail liquor licenses. So basically for the sale of liquor and wine to consume off premise. Right now, Ephraim has a license that you can, you can sell beer and wine on site, but you can't get a six pack to go or a bottle of wine to take home with you in the village of Ephraim but you can drink a glass of wine at Trixie's or Pearl or beer at Bad Moravian or Wilson's or wherever. Any of those businesses can get those licenses. But what happened is Pearl Wine Cottage wanted to offer wine for sale, like for retail purposes. And it turned out that you can't just get a wine license. Like you can't just sell wine for retail purposes. You have to get a license that allows you to sell wine and liquor because they fall under the same category in terms of Wisconsin state statute. So it's seems, kind of, yeah, it seems like an oversight. They're qualified by as like fermented beverages. So it's, it's different than beer. It's just like a weird and kombucha and you would, you would think that they would be closer to beer in terms of alcohol level. I think we all think of them as closer to beer, right? Mentally. I think we yeah. think of beer and wine and then liquor as its own thing. Yeah. Or we think of a beer as its own thing, wine, liquor, and cider as all their own things. Wisconsin state statute doesn't allow you to just get the one-offs for those licenses. So when Pearl started looking at this, they had to ask the village to consider doing this other license, even though they weren't looking to sell liquor at the time. So they just wanted to be able to sell wine because they have a great wine selection and they probably have a great market for it. And it's another small revenue stream for them. But, and it, it'd be a store similar to, I mean, Firefly and Sister Bay, Daughters and Company in Egg Harbor, Top Shelf. You know, think of those types of places. Maddox Avenue Wine Shop, just small retail outlets. Nobody notices them ever. You know, it's not like 
Although in Ephraim, when you listen to the board meetings, the discussion from some of the residents, what they have in mind is a corner liquor store with people on the bench out front drinking out of brown bags, bars on the windows, and drug needles on the ground. Like, seriously, that is some of the perception that is there. It sounds overblown and hyperbolic. Is that a word? Hyperbolic. Uh, hyperbolic. Um, That's how I would say it. But no, that is actually what some people envision with it. So what's the... it? This is a case of slippery slope, right? People are thinking if you allow Pearl Wine Cottage to sell wine, then all of a sudden the worst case scenario is going to happen. Is it a different liquor license to be able to like sell cocktails? Yes. Okay. That'd be another one altogether. And that, that has nothing to do with this. So right. no one's afraid of a bar coming in. People do think that this would be one more, as Niles Weborg, longtime Ephraim statesman of Ephraim, <laughs> elder of Ephraim, feels like this is another step, and he said this at multiple meetings, that this is a slippery slope toward Ephraim having a tavern. And there are people in Ephraim who are dead set against Ephraim ever having a tavern. And that that's fine. I mean, maybe it shouldn't have that. But beer and wine does not seem to have ruined or changed the character of the village in an adverse way. Yeah. I think it's changed the character of the village for sure, but I I wouldn't see it as a as a bad thing. Right. I Again, I look at places like the Pearl and like Trixie's as bringing in, you already had Wilson's bringing in families and I don't know what else you go to Ephraim for. <laughs> so, well, well, this is, was an issue for a lot of people in Ephraim. When they finally voted to allow beer and wine, one of the things that that does for a restaurant, as somebody who has owned restaurants that had and didn't have beer and wine licenses, there's only so far you can go to some degree with a, with a lot of styles of restaurants without offering beer and wine. Like I had a pizza shop that didn't have a beer and wine license. I can't tell you how many times people came in up to me and said like, I can't get beer with my pizza. Like it, and they just walk across the street. You lose a lot of business that way. It's one reason Ephraim never had a lot of year round restaurants. Still doesn't, but you know, Trixie's has gone farther. Chef's Hat's gone farther. Bad Moravian has gone farther into the off season because now it's like you have more clientele that you can attract into your restaurant. So it's a, a simple matter of economics. So it makes Ephraim a little bit more of a year-round village. Certainly, there's a case we made that a lot of people don't want that at all. And that's, that's just, I mean, they, they vote on it. So ultimately, they voted, and the citizens said, yes, we, wanna, we want beer and wine. Niles Weborg spoke at this last meeting and blamed that on outsiders. Ephraim was always dry until outsiders came in and changed our village. And, you know, that's a common Door County lament. But... It was interesting to say that when you when the debate is about Pearl Wine Cottage, which is owned by Monique McLean and Lars Topelman, who's you know in the Topelman's case, their family's been here for more than half a century. So <laughs> it it kind of speaks to how long you have to be here to be considered an insider if you can be here for half a century and still be an outsider. Sure. So so that's just kind of an amusing anecdote. But anyway, they're going to finally they've been debating this for a year. They're finally going to so they say make a decision in January. And what they have proposed is to offer two licenses. They put a cap on it, one license for every 250 residents. And so with 354 residents, they would have two licenses. And they couldn't have a third until there were 500. And then they would have some qualifications and kind of, they were trying, they've been tying themselves up in knots, trying to write this in a way that they can enforce it so it doesn't change Ephraim. Right. So to speak. So, so one license would go to the Pearl and one license would go to the corner liquor store. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Sweet. So that's where that's all at. And, you know, Ephraim, to some people's disappointment, to some people, it's to their credit. They deliberate for a long time on these things. Like I said, they've talked about this in meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And just like, you know, they, they worked through their streetscape project for years and, and several other questions for a long, long time. And as Village President Mike McCutcheon would say is like, hey, this helps us make sure we think of all the issues. And it resulted in a really good streetscape project. And hopefully that deliberative process results in a really good decision on this ordinance as well. To my mind, I look at it and say like, there are literally tens of thousands of these ordinances around the country for different communities of all sizes, like copy paste. (laughs) Right. But Door County. We all think our villages are the only one of their kind. Right. Anything else that you and I should talk about before we wrap up here for this week? Uh, just a couple other notes. Those other issues in Ephraim, Village Hall, the debate there is about a committee has looked at the, the facilities committee in Ephraim, looked at the Village Hall and said, this is a beautiful property. 
It's one of the most beautiful, unique buildings and where is pieces of architecture in... Are you serious? Yeah, where is it? Right next to Wilson's. I know there's a gazebo next to Wilson's. <laughs> Just the main Ephraim Village Hall. I know that there's the, the fire garage and then a gazebo and then Wilson's. It's right in the center of town. Right there. Right in the middle of town. Big stone building. Library? Between Chef's Hat... It's the same one. The library is in the village hall. Oh, okay. All right. Now I know where yeah. it is. No, no. <laughs> I always just look at that as the place that I park when I'm going to Wilson's. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. The, so the village hall, most people consider that one of the more unique buildings in the county. Most people, not everybody. Some people, <laughs> Apparently not. Some people don't um, know what it looks like. The, uh, so this, the committee looked at it and said, like, you know, it's, it, it's a shame that we have this beautiful building. And then there's just, like, parking all around it. And could we add some green space to it by reconfiguring the parking and kind of give some space for the building to breathe and, and shine a little bit. So what they propose is taking the f- five parking spaces away from the front of the building. Oh no, that's where I park. And putting some green space there and then replacing that parking with parallel parking on that side of the street along the highway. That causes problems because a maybe people think parallel parking is really, really hard, but it, up here anyway. But also, it does create some sightline problems get pulling in and out of Highway 42 on some of those yeah, side I streets. Yeah, I will say that parking lot is harrowing, trying to pull back out onto the highway, especially reversing onto the highway. Yeah. Because you cannot see anything. You basically have to pray. Yeah. You just, I'm going. I'm going. Now, flip side, it's worked for 100 years, right? Like, you don't hear about a lot of accidents at that thing, probably because people are so cautious because they're going slow because you can't see. So sometimes, like... Having those dangerous things makes people more cautious and having a wide open space because then they, they take risks that way. That's a whole yeah. different traffic a conversation. Of death traps throughout the county will reduce the amount of accidents overall. <laughs> yes. So right now you reverse onto the highway to get out of those parking spots. Well, you'd replace that with grass and then now you'd have parallel parking on the highway, which is on a corner. So people are worried that if you have parallel parking there, A, it could back up traffic. As John Cox said, it would back it up all the way to German Road. To me, that seems like a law, a big exaggeration because most people, if they can't actually parallel park fairly quickly, they just pull away and go somewhere else. But it, you know, it, it does cause some sightline issues. So they're going to revisit that, set it up so people can come and look at what it will look like if you have parallel parking there and how much green space you'd actually be gaining. And ultimately what a lot of these board member said is, okay, you add that green space, you put the parallel parking. Well, now you just have people parallel parked in front of the green space. Have we really done a lot to help the facade of the building and really give it the space it deserves if we're still just parking cars, you know, a few feet farther away? Yeah, I think green space it, get rid of the parallel parking, do a car ferry right in the water right there. (laughs) This makes a lot of sense. However, you could, this didn't come up, but, you know, if if your goal is to accentuate the building... My, my hunch is like, all right, put the green space there. Just don't put the parallel parking. But everyone feels like you desperately need every parking spot you can possibly get. So we can't sacrifice a parking spot. So that's why they're trying to squeeze the parallel parking. If you were just looking at it from an architectural standpoint and how do I highlight this building best, just get rid of all the parallel parking there. Or get, get rid of all that parking. Don't replace it and just have four fewer parking spots. Here's the secret about Ephraim. There's always parking in Ephraim because there's some paid parking in Ephraim. Yeah. That's where I park a lot because, hey, it's three bucks. Why not? Yeah. It's gonna, I'm not I don't have to park at right the next village to hall. Wilson's. Yeah. I don't have to park at the village hall because it scares me. And so I'll just go park in the paid parking. That lot is so empty most of the time that that's where we once recorded a podcast interview. Yeah. No, <laughs> in that, yeah, that parking lot because there's true. no one back there. Right. Mm. And I don't know how many spaces there are back there, but I think it's like three bucks. I think there's like, tw- I want to say there's like 20 spaces back there. But yeah, not used that often. And then, uh, I don't know, I... I go to Ephraim fairly often because they did such a great job with their streetscape that I will go down there with my wife and kids and dog and walk up and down Ephraim and get a cup of coffee. And generally we park right in the center. I I actually have never even had to use the the highway parking. Like I've, again, it's a topic for a whole nother issue, but I've never really. It all comes back to parking. Never really had trouble finding places to park in Ephraim. Right. No matter what time of day. Yeah. I'm surprised there isn't more paid parking throughout Door County. Especially when I go visit the cities again, like when I go to Chicago or Minneapolis, most of the parking that I'm using is paid parking. Every once in a while, I'll have to find myself one of those like $20 paid parking spots, and that sucks. But just like a regular meter, they all have phone apps now. They're so easy to use. 
we should absolutely have paid parking in most of those businesses. Like, that's how you get people to stop driving so much. Anyway, another issue. North End Ephraim is the other project that they're talking about that's high on the list. One, well, actually, there's two. Anderson Dock, they've decided that that's probably their top priority. Yep, Got to pressure wash out. it. Got to clean <laughs> it up. How to, it needs some updating. It needs some repair work to the tune of 750000 to a million dollars, somewhere in that ballpark probably, both the dock and the building itself. So they need to decide on that. They do feel like there's probably donors available to fund some of that, if not all of it, maybe grant dollars available, but kind of interesting. Know, if there's not money for it, just let them start drawing on the roof again. They used to let them draw on the <laughs> well, roof. They're still having graffiti discussions there too. But that project is is a high on the priority. And then the next on their priority list is the North End Path which would run from roughly Waterbury through up to Associated Bank. It'd be an off-road multimodal path on the Red Putter side of the road. And that could largely be funded with the excess funds from Streetscape from a few years ago that are only allowed to be used for Streetscape-related projects. So it's kind of a no-brainer to shift that over and then figure out the, the gap there. But they'll make a decision on, at least they say they will make a decision on the prioritization of those projects and what the next steps for those would be. Got it. Is one of the projects changing the speed limit north of Anderson Dock? Because it does not have to be 25 for that long. (laughs) It's 25 for so long up that hill. And you end up speeding up to get up the hill anyway. And then you're like, oh, it's still 25. I can't believe it. It is. And it seems so slow sometimes. But oddly enough, this time of year, it's a little bit faster. I think it goes to 35 at the... Maybe a little sooner. Maybe I have that wrong. They've switched over at but this that, point, yeah. There is a curve there, not quite 90-degree curve, and there's an accident there seemingly every winter as people go down the hill because they spin out because there's like an ice spot there because it gets extra shade. So I see if it were going a little faster, maybe be more dangerous. Don't know. And then again, I'm, I'm a proponent of just locking that whole road to 30 year-round. That's what Egg Harbor does. I think yeah. Ephraim's one of the only places in the state that changes speed limits. 25 is too slow. 35 is too fast. 30, perfect. Because you're going to slow down in the summer anyway. You have to. Yeah. So there's no need to. Well, and speed limit signs are a bad way to control speed. I keep telling my wife that, and she's like, you're going 80. And I'm like, well, the road feels like it should be 80. That's exactly it. Miles, thank you so much for chatting with me, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.